Hi, my name is Ali Reza Mojibian and welcome to Noteworthy. Having started his professional career as a pianist and repetiteur, Maestro Leslie Dalla was subsequently appointed as the chorus director of Vancouver Opera in 2004. His tenure and title of associate conductor at VO has seen him through over 90 main stage productions, as well as his appointment as program director of the Yolanda M. Ferris Young Artist Program. Maestro Dalla's expansive career has taken him across the country and around the world, but for many of us who were and, a part, uh, and are a part of the UBC Opera Ensemble, he has been one of our greatest mentors. His passion, his drive, and limitless knowledge are simply an inspiration. Maestro Dalla joins me today to discuss his career, his love for music, and I ask him to give us his thoughts on the status of music in Canada as a whole during these uncertain times. Welcome, Les. How are you? Hi, Ali. I'm I'm great. I'm actually blushing here from your very generous and kind introduction. <laughs> it's only but, the truth, sir. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> thanks. That's very, very sweet. Um, I'm doing great. And how are you? I'm doing well. Um, uh, quarantine has uh, has had its blessings and curses. I'm I'm happy to say that uh, um, I, I have my health. My family has their health, and I think at this point that's. Uh, that's the um, biggest blessing and uh, level that we should hopefully all be at. Yeah, how, how very true, right? Easy to overlook sometimes, but yeah, that is the bottom line. So Les, for our conversation today, I really wanted to start at the beginning. You come from a very musical family, as we've discussed prior before in, in private. Is that something that you and your siblings inherited from your parents? My mom was the musician and music lover in the family, for sure. And my father was uh, the one who worked very hard to, to pay for all of our lessons and our education, for which I will eternally be grateful uh, to both of them. My mom passed away in 2016, but uh, my father's still around in Toronto. Um, both of my parents were born in Hungary, and they both came to Canada uh, in the same year. They met in, in Canada, but... Uh, they they came over in 1957, just after the the failed revolution in 56, and then the Soviets took over, and a lot of people uh, basically uh, immigrated. Well, they they escaped; they were refugees. And um, my mom's dream, her childhood dream, was to be a musician, and she had studied the piano and the violin and the accordion and singing. And I think her once she had gotten to a certain level and, and started working with a teacher who was um, a singer at the Hungarian State Opera, this person put into her ear, well, you know, you could become an opera singer. They came from a very conservative world, and so when she came to Canada, I met my dad, I think she instantly thought, well, I need to, my goal now in life is to raise a family, and so she kind of put the uh, pro professional aspirations uh, away. But having said that, uh, myself and my three siblings uh, were all... Um, we, you know, we had to study music, which is a great thing, actually. I went to, I was very fortunate to go to a school called St. Michael's Choir School in Toronto, which is um, uh, basically a, a, an institution. Um, there, we had one hour of singing every single day. Um, it, it used to run from grade 3 to 13. I think I was the last year of, of grade 13 before they got rid of that. Um, and uh, so I was there, what is that, 10, 11 years, whatever. Um, 
And uh, so we did an hour of singing a day. I mean, it's kind of when I tell people this, it just seems like I can't even quite believe it myself. But, you know, one of the first things we learned to read was Gregorian chant. And we would be singing uh, Renaissance motets of Palestrina and Lassus and Bird and you name it. And the other incredible bonus, um, I know this has changed a little bit, but as part of the tuition and and getting into the school, everybody had to study piano. And that was included in the tuition. And you actually did your piano lessons uh, during school time. So if it was math class, but your piano lesson was on Wednesday, you said two o'clock, you just got out of class to go and take your lesson. And on top of that, um, they offered other instruments as well. So I was literally able to study the organ and the violin uh, while I was at St. Michael's with the faculty that they had there. And there were some really very good teachers and it was a small school. I mean, literally we're talking about, uh, you know, 11 grades and the school was about 400 people in total. So you literally pretty much knew everybody, even the kids who were much older than yourself. And uh, so I, you know, looking back to, I, 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 I'm immensely grateful for, for the opportunities and, uh, and the education, which I, I don't think I could have gotten anywhere else. By the time I was 18, I figured, well, I was working as a, as a professional musician, as, a, as an organist. And actually that was really handy because I paid for my university through my organ work and playing for funerals and weddings and, and you know whatever came up but I decided that I also I didn't want my career to, to be just inside church so I always loved the piano and I thought well I'm going to do a bachelor's in, in piano which I did at University of Toronto studying with a wonderful teacher William Aid who I'm still friends with to this day and uh, when I graduated from U of T I was feeling just a, a little bit uncertain as to what to do next and um, so I kind of I took a year off. I had applied for a couple of master's programs and I was accepted, but I, I just thought, well, I'll take a year. And I still had my organ work and I thought I would freelance and I had some concerts and things. But the thing that really changed my life was getting accepted uh, into the Banff Center. And it was in it was a contemporary opera, basically. And at this point, I have to tell you, I was not the biggest opera fan. Like it really did, did not. I had been to a bunch of COC shows and um I, you know, I I I love I loved what I saw, but it wasn't. I didn't really know that there was kind of a career in all of this. It was and, it was uh, an acquired taste. It was an acquired taste, and even actually, my brother, who his route was going to Europe, and he was there for I think eighteen years before he moved back to Canada, doing his training and then working in, in different theaters as both a ballet and opera conductor. Um, I I think he he said the same thing. You know, it, it wasn't totally love at first sight, but then when then when you get involved in it, then you just think, oh my god, I can't do anything. <laughs> so, uh, and I met just a great group of, of colleagues there and living in, in Banff for three months was just uh, one of the greatest gifts I think I've ever had. So that, that's where I met my wife. Um, she was a soprano and we worked together a lot. And um, so after that, I came back to Toronto thinking I need to do like I, I was so changed by Banff. I thought I want to I want to go out west. And I, I knew that there was a, a very strong program at UBC and there was a piano teacher that I, I heard so many great things about, Nikum Singh, uh, who re- retired from UBC a number of years ago, but is still teaching here in Vancouver. Um, and he was for many, many years the head of the piano department at the Vancouver Academy of Music as well. And uh, so I, I thought, well, I can, I'll, I'll just apply to go to school and see what happens. And I sent in a late application. They accepted it. And then I just showed up in Vancouver, basically, and uh, my plan was to stay for two years, and that was 30, 25 years ago. So, you know, plans change, um, but it was, 
uh, again, sort of an accident that while I was in school, some contacts that I had made in Banff, um, one of them actually David Agler, who was the former music director of Vancouver Opera, and he was great. He came to all of the recitals, of which there were almost daily recitals of, of all the people in the song program. And he heard me play a few times, and, and we were just chatting in the hallway once, and um, I think we then decided to have a coffee. And, and he said, so, you know, tell me what you're up to. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I, I'm, gonna, I'm moving to Vancouver. And he kind of looked at me, and he, I, I, I appreciate, I know you've worked with him too, so when I say he kind of gave me this look, I think everybody that's ever worked with him can sort of picture knows that look. He knows the look. And yeah. he said, oh, he said, well, he said, if, if I'd known that two weeks ago, I would have had a job for you. And I remember my jaw dropped and I thought, oh, my God, that was my ticket. And I missed it. I missed <laughs> it. <laughs> uh. And he could see my expression. And uh, he said, oh, don't worry. He said, you know, like he said, you know, we're always looking for people. He said, just stay in touch and come and play some auditions. And he said, you know, if anything ever comes up, uh, we'll be in touch. And I must say, I mean, boy, he was so true to his word. The following year, um, in the winter, VO was doing their first ever production of Peter Grimes of, of Benjamin Britten, which is, you know, a massive piece. Ben Hefner was making his world debut in that. And um, lucky for me, they needed an organist. So I wasn't on staff at the opera, and I was literally in my first year at UBC. But I got this call. And again, because it was, uh, you know, not repping the show, not being involved in three, four weeks of rehearsal, it was just to come in and play in the orchestra. And I have to tell you, after that experience, I just knew, like, there's nothing else I wanted to do. Like, just, again, the community of opera, when you hear somebody like Ben Havner open his mouth and, and the magnificent chorus, and, and you know, and being in the pit. Actually, that was also another thing, uh, which is kind of funny. You know, I was, uh, at that time, just supporting myself with a, a small organ job in East Van, which paid very little. And also I was a TA for Terence Dawson, who's still, I think he's the head of the piano department at UBC. And, and you know, you get a TA salary, which is not very much. So, I mean, we're basically just paying the rent. And uh, when this, this job came for the opera, now I had just joined the union uh, in order to to be able to able to to play with the uh, with the orchestra, and when I got my check, I, I nearly died. I mean, suddenly I could pay what three four months of rent, and and I just remember thinking, oh my god, I'd like this is what I want to do because yeah. this is so amazing. So I'm so sorry. That was a very very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, you know, so we um I had the pleasure of meeting you for the first time when with my first two roles, um Don Cairo and Morales and Carmen and and over the years um I think at least five productions, whole productions and four different bard performances and wow. plenty of other performances with with you. So to get a full idea of your story that was that was really special thank you for sharing that i was really lucky uh enough to be able to take both introductory and orchestral conducting courses when i was doing yep. my masters and honestly they were two of my favorites uh, dr gerard and dr taylor are fantastic instructors and just my experiences in that in that uh, in those two courses they the amount of appreciation I've um, I've grown to uh, get have have for conductors just went to a totally different level. The focus and the care and the multi layered approach uh, to fully immerse oneself in the music was just incredible. Um, what was the first piece you conducted? Before I moved to Vancouver, as I said, I was very involved in church music, so 
I believe that at my grade eight graduation, the music director of the school allowed me to conduct our grade eight class. Uh, and it was some, I want to say it was a motet of Palestrina. I think I, that must have been it because I remember I loved the piece very much and I was just thrilled to death to be given that opportunity. I think the next thing uh, outside of, you know, leading a choir at, at uh, church services, I put together with that choir, I decided I had sort of free reign, I could do whatever. And I put together a performance of the Foray Requiem just with organ. And, uh, you know, obviously it's just has two soloists and it, it is a piece you can do with a very small choir. So I remember that was something um, I must have been in first or second year university. So that was a, a project that had no, you know what I mean? There was no uh, expectation for a course or for this or that, but it was something I just really wanted to do and was able to to do it. When one conducts, the conductor is the only person who is not making sound. Everybody else is. So then it becomes about something so completely different that, you know, you can be the finest singer in the world or the finest instrumentalist in the world. But then so suddenly, and you know, conducting looks easy. And, it, it, you know, there's certain things about it which are completely elementary. Like, you know, you learn a pattern and, and some people from day one look so graceful and elegant. And for the rest of us, you know, sometimes we really have to work on that to just lose any of the tension or, or the inhibitions and that sort of thing. And that's also a lifelong process. But that's not the interest of conducting. It's not the way that we are. It's everything that happens, you know, in the concept of how something is put together. Absolutely. And it's like... And in a way that the waving of the arms becomes this very, like it's the only way of, of, of trying to obviously communicate something. So there is, there's, it's like tel telepathy. There's something quite, quite magical about it. And as you say, like even cues and things like that, I mean, when one doesn't think about it, um, you know, there's such a, a, I would say with conducting especially, there's such a, a kind of uh, intellectual side to it, a side that is all about the imagination and about and then there's a very practical side to it, which is just about be clear. I, yeah. I, show me your upbeat. You know what I mean? The, the first episode of your podcast, um, Vancouver Opera Offstage, premiered on the 29th of April. Um, and I wanted to know, was this something that was in the works prior to quarantine or was it a product of quarantine and a tool of uh, to keep connected with the audience it's exactly what you say the latter um be because in fact you know we would have been um right near we would have just opened at that point uh, another brick in the wall which i was supposed to conduct um and uh, you know i as i have to admit this is a sort of a, a guilty pleasure confession but I, I love the music of Pink floyd i always have i was a kid when that album came out um it was one of the first things i I bought. I had virtually. I think I had everything in the catalog of theirs, even the early stuff with Sid Barrett and uh, even his solo album. So that's what would have been happening in April, and and a kind of a mini festival put uh, around that topic, and and so there would have been so much else going on. I actually went to Europe in the first week of March. I I, I found a crazy great deal to go to fly to Germany uh, on Iceland Air before Christmas. I literally paid $500 for a return ticket. And I thought, oh, I've always wanted to do this. COVID on March 1st, 2nd was still, it hadn't even, I mean, it had hit Italy, but it was like nowhere near what the outbreak that, that hit a couple of weeks later. Spain, it hadn't touched yet, really. So anyways, I, I had booked this knowing that I had a, a gap in my calendar and I had just come off a whole bunch of concerts. Like 
uh, three different things in, 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 in three weeks. Uh, and then um, I was going to be starting another brick near the middle to late March. So I thought, I've got this week. I'm just going to go and do it. And uh, so I, I booked it. And then I remember like a couple of days before my wife was like, are you sure you should be going? Like, I'm, you know, I'm not sure this, this is not looking so good. And I, well, I said, well, no one said anything. There's been no like travel advisory or anything yet. I think it's, it's going to be fine. And when I showed up, I got there on the 4th of March, I think it was. Um, and it was, everything was still, you know, running. Uh, Rachel Pamon and I did a recital in Berlin that she helped set up at, uh, at somebody's studio. We did this thing, and that was on a Sunday afternoon, whatever the date was, I think May, oh, sorry, March 8th. Or, yeah, that's right. It was March 8th. And the next day, uh, we saw this notice that um, theaters were starting to say that they were not going to, they are going to shut down. And the Berlin Phil at that same day also announced that they were suspending all future like programs in front of an audience because of this COVID thing. And I still had a couple of days there and, you know, no one was wearing masks or anything. And then, again, there was no shutdown. I, I wandered around the streets like a tourist. I met up with people for coffee, uh, went out, you know, uh, did all the usual things. And then the morning I came back, I remember having the news on and I was so scared because there was this, you know, it's a lot of sort of American satellite stations over there and, um, I couldn't get much Canadian news, but Trump had just announced that on the weekend they were not allowing any flights in from Europe. And I thought, oh my God, I got to get out of here. And the day I flew back was March 12th, which is the day that Angela Merkel keeps referring to as the day that everything changed. So I was just so lucky. Of course, I had to self-quarantine when I got back for two weeks, which I did. But as it turns out, and you know, my kids were so proud of me because they were just about to go on March break and they're like, you've ruined this for us. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. But then everybody had to, like nothing happened, right? Everything shut yeah. down. And so... Especially uh, in BC, to... we did the, we did we had our shutdown at the most opportune time. Not yes. opportune in terms of for the students who were going on March break, but in terms of stopping the uh, preventing the infection from getting uh, as bad as is as it did other places. It was perfect timing at the time of our conversation. You're getting ready to publish your tenth episode. Uh, I, I have always been interested in podcasts. I've loved podcasts ever since it became a thing. Um, and I was introduced to it more by, by close friends, introduced to other uh, kinds of shows by more friends. Um, and so when I started this um, journey, it was very much um, for me a, a new creative outlet and to reconnect with friends, especially during quarantine, see how they were doing, how quarantine had affected them. And I've really enjoyed the process personally. How's it been for you and the, and your team? Yeah, I've I've enjoyed it tremendously as well. Uh, I love talking, speaking with people, and uh, the the whole thing uh, it has been a chance to uh, check in with friends and and mentors and colleagues and you know getting to interview judith forrest and and listening to her talk about being in a room and on stage with some of the greatest singers of the 20th century uh was just such a an inspiring uh conversation and uh you know was really humbling and, and she's so humble which is amazing other other than uh the legendary judith forrest um uh, have you had any other uh, moments or highlights that stick out for you in the first nine episodes? I mean, they've all been great. So, like, I would hate to pick favorites, but you know, I've worked with uh, Jonathan Darlington for twenty years, and uh, he's been such a role model uh, for me and an inspiration. He's somebody I still look up to. 
somebody who really is a musician's musician. His, his was early on, so as you, as you know, as you do, some of these were taped a few weeks in advance, and so, um, you know, we talked shortly after COVID had just hit, and uh, so talking to people who, I mean, we've all been stopped in our tracks uh, in, in, you know, the performing arts world, so uh, getting people's reflections on that as well has been really, really interesting, and of course, you know, uh, Tom Wright, who I've, I've been working with now for 14 years, I guess it is, um, and uh, who I would say also I would I would count as a very close friend. Uh, and he's somebody, you know, I've, I've done auditions with for um, casting and for a young artist program. So we've traveled together a lot. We've gone to many, many performances out of town. I had many conversations uh, over drinks or over meals about, you know, uh, envisioning, you know, with the dreaming of like what, what's opera in its purest and, and best form and how we all imagine that to be. Uh, so that was great. You know, Rachel Peake, I've uh, done three shows with. Uh, we've partnered on Rachel Rentola and Menos in Figaro and world premiere Stick Boy. And she was to have uh, directed the video opening show next year of, of Carmen, uh, which is for the 60th anniversary, and I was going to conduct that. So, you know, we, we have a nice partnership. And of course, uh, UBC grads, Rachel Fenlon, Simon Osborne, who, you know, we know, both know very well. Daniel Coolidge, somebody I've worked with a lot. And Matthew White as well, who uh, was a singer, a world-class countertenor, who's now heading EMV that I've had the chance to work with and I've had many conversations. So, you know, it's great. I feel so lucky uh, to be able to tap into, uh, you know, what keeps these people creative and, and passionate. And uh, so, yeah, it's, um, again, this came up, as, as, as you said, you know, what, how are we going to stay in touch with, with audiences and, you know, Vancouver is not the Met. We don't have these high definition broadcasts that we can uh, put up there. So we thought, well, how about a podcast? And I had a meeting with a number of, of uh, the staff members. And I guess I, I just so naively said, well, if, if you're looking for somebody to, to host it, I, I, I think I could do that. And they're like, good, because we were going to volunteer you. <laughs> With regards to um, the pandemic and, and how it's affected um, arts organizations and, and, and musicians across the country, um, I have two questions for you. Um, in addition to your appointments at Vancouver Opera, uh, you're also the um, uh, music director of the Vancouver Bach Choir and the um, uh, music, music director emeritus of the uh, Vancouver Academy Symphony Orchestra. How is the Vancouver Opera approaching uh, new ways of music making? And are there discussions going around uh, with uh, other institutions across uh, the province and across the country? It's amazing how many conversations are going around. Um, I've been part of uh, so many Zoom calls in the last few weeks. I didn't even know what that was before this, before COVID hit. <laughs> and uh, now it's like a daily thing, whether it's, you know, internal uh, staff meetings with, with Bach Choir or with the Opera, or um, Opera America, uh, Chorus Canada. Um, it's been enlightening. I mean, that again, it, it, you know, there have been some positive uh, outcomes from COVID, and that's one of them. I mean, never, never before have people reached out to each other in such a way, uh, because we're all just trying to figure out what to do next. Certainly, the, the the plus side has been the sharing of information and resources, and trying to to figure out how we're all going to come out of this and what it's going to look like on the other side. So, with the opera, you know, the season shut down, 
And with the Bach Choir, for example, most of our performance season had actually come to a close. Uh, but then, you know, people uh, pay membership fees and they expect to go to the end of May. So we started uh, having chats and uh, talked to some conductor uh, friend colleagues. We ended up having eight sessions. I won't call them really rehearsals because they're, they're not, although we had as many as 90 people show up to them. Oh, wow. Uh, the problem is you have to you, you have to mute everybody because, of course, you can't <laughs> do anything in real time, right? Yes. As you know. Um, but one of the pieces we, we were going to perform, we were going to open the season with the VSO in September with Beethoven 9 at their invitation. And then in October, we were going to do Beethoven's Misa Solemnis, which is a piece that I think was last done in the city in 1996, I want to say, when Bruce Pullen conducted it. And so it's been a long time and it's a magnificent, magnificent work, but it's just possibly one of the most difficult uh, scores for, for chorus ever written. And when I say that, you know, I know I'm not including crazy new music that's just hard to learn and, and hard to, but, but in terms of the demands uh, for everybody, for the soloist, for the orchestra, and it was a piece that he wrote when he was completely deaf and very much in his own internal world. And so I thought, well, you know, at this point, too, nobody knew if September maybe performances will go ahead or not. And yes. so I said, well, let's uh, let's just do something on Zoom. So I kind of crafted an eight week um, guide through the Misa Solemnis. And we picked it apart. And uh, between myself and our wonderful pianist, uh, Stephen Smith, we recorded uh, piano tracks to rehearse to in small chunks. And then I would talk through it with choir and then start playing the track over my computer and then they would sing along at home on mute and then I would just you know kind of go back over some details of them even though I couldn't hear them but just saying okay these are usually the pitfalls be very careful look at the dynamics Beethoven is famous for subito pianos that's his thing but anyways we picked it apart and spent six weeks working through it and then the last two weeks reviewing it at which time um, I put on a recording of the work that Bernard Haitink did a couple of years ago and they sang along to it. I mean, what else were we going to do? There was no way we, we could we could come together in person in any way. And I just thought, well, at least we'll explore it together. And I, some people get a kick out of it when I tell stories that other people just be like, oh, could you just please shut up and can we sing? And in this case, because they couldn't really, it gave me a chance to, to talk about the piece. <laughs> and, you know, it shares <laughs> So it was almost like conductor's revenge, right? Like, I, I really using about... Zoom to your advantage here. <laughs> well, it just, you know, because the thing is, like, then you could say something, you can do things, you, know, you have to do things differently in that context anyway. So then why not kind of go for broke? So I felt, you know, really um, that that was something positive. And at, at the end of the last rehearsal, we always had some breakout time in it where people could talk or with some sectional work with our uh, professional section leaders. Um, but at the last one, we just decided to have a kind of open conversation to just, you know, wrap up and so people could could visit. It's hard to do when you've got like a choir of like literally 90 people, um, you know, but, but what was um, so beautiful uh, was somebody said, you know, I know that like a lot of us are really frustrated by the fact that we can't hear each other. We just see each other on these, these little cubes on the screen. But this person said, I was talking to some of my, my friends who also sing in choirs. And they're actually quite envious because they just stopped, period. They're not doing yeah. anything. I was going and to say, so, this is incredibly innovative. Well, it's like, again, it's the technology, right, that exists. And yes. so, like, this was a very kind of primitive sort of, it was my first shot at something. But, you know, generally we figured out the technology. And, of course, there were always glitches. Either I would freeze or somebody else would freeze or the track would freeze or something. But, 
you know, you, you learn that you, you just have to be patient because there's nothing else. But I know that there are a lot of platforms in the meantime that are trying to develop the technology to make it possible for people to in, in real time to make music together. Now, whether that will, you know, happen by the fall, I, I'm, I, I, I doubt it, but it would be amazing. And if not, you know, we'll continue to do something. Like, I, if things are going to move forward, things are going to move forward at Vancouver Opera as well. I can't really say very much about that because that is also still a work in progress. Um, but, you know, for, for the four-stage plan that Dr. Bonnie Henry put out, unfortunately, Opera is phase four. Uh, how... Uh, has uh, quarantine been for you? Have, have you been able to do things and get back to things that that uh, were that there was a strain of uh, time on before? Well, I gotta say, you know, it's been um, it's a very sort of unusual thing. Like one day feels like the day before, right? So it's like this kind of endless thing. But I have to say, I'm kind of a I am a, a project oriented person, and I would go crazy if I had nothing to do. And of course, I can't so. Even these Zoom rehearsals, I didn't really conduct. I would just sort of talk over things because, of course, the screen might, you know, slow down. So I've done a, a ton of piano practicing, usually several hours a day. Um, I've revisited some pieces. I've learned a lot of new things working on the 20 piano etudes of Philip Glass, oh, wow. which I, I'm hoping to develop uh, into a show with a wonderful uh, Vancouver-based uh, choreographer by the name of Edon Cohen, who I met two years ago, um, and just, you know, on my iPhone, at home, on my uh, my upright piano, I just decided I would record myself playing them, so it, I, I forced myself to, like, record one a day for, like, three weeks, essentially, 20 days, right, and that was one project, and um, I've had a few things like I, my, I, I studied some German way back, but it's the, the, the language in particular that I felt weakest about. So I thought, okay, I've had a Duolingo account for a long time and I just going to buckle down. And I've been doing the same thing. I've Duolingo, Duolingo has become my best friend. I've been working on my German and my Italian and I'm finally making progress and it feels so good. <laughs> nice. Another thing that I'd love to do is walk. And so like, I, I'm kind of, I'm obsessed, I, I, but uh, I've got a 90-day, 10,000-day streak going. Uh, oh, or nice more. job. Um, and my Duolingo is at 103 days. Like, I'm just determined like that that is part of the structure of my day, even if it's, you know, a Duolingo, even if it's just a few lessons. Um, but to just get outside, rain or shine, and, and move around. To cap off, uh, I know you gave us a couple of music recommendations at the beginning. Is there anything else that's on your uh, quarantine playlist? Um, you know what? Yeah, I would I, let me do a shout out for um, a, a couple of friends and colleagues who, uh, who whose recordings came out just in the last few months. One of them is an amazing, amazing uh, Canadian pan pianist by the name of Stuart Goodyear, who actually went to St. Michael's. He's about eight years younger than me, I think, eight or nine. And he was a child prodigy, literally. He went to um, Curtis when he was, I think, 16 or something. And he's recorded all of the Beethoven sonatas. That came out a few years ago. But just last month or the month before, his recording of the five Beethoven piano concertos came out. It's on Orchid Classics. It's just fantastic. He's uh, he's a monster. He This guy, um, I think it was eight years ago at the Luminato Festival in Toronto, performed all 32 Beethoven sonatas in one day. Uh, no way. Yeah, I mean, he's he's like when I say prodigious, like he's he and again the the sheer endurance of, of what he can do, and I believe that he played the five piano concertos either in like 
I think it was in one day. It may have even been in one concert and a super extended concert. And so he does things like this all the time. His his repertoire, is, I think, has just about everything in it. He's also a very fine composer um, and uh, a terrific musician. So I would do a shout out uh, for him. And uh, also, uh, this is piano music. Eh? I'm from the opera guys. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You're going but, back uh, to your roots. I'm going back to my roots. Another... Um, uh, this is an artist I have not met yet, but I noticed on Facebook we had many, many mutual friends, and um, she is a, a Hungarian-born, um, I think she grew up in Romania, but she's Hungarian and now lives in Paris, and her name is uh, Susanna Bartoni. I want to make sure I got that right, and I, I downloaded her recording on, on iTunes of, of Franz Liszt's Complete Anne de Pelerinage, which is um, a set of pieces that he kind of he wrote over over the span of his life. The first ones are started when he was in his twenties, and the last ones are, are late pieces. And so this came out just a couple of months ago, and uh, so it's over three hours of music, and it's such beautiful, beautiful playing of some, uh, you know. This uh, outside of maybe a couple of those selections, of which there are probably over 30, most of them are unknown. So this is not like hackneyed repertoire by any sense. And often I think people who don't like Liszt uh, have in mind that he was just this virtuoso always showing off. And, and yet they couldn't be further from the truth. He simply he developed his technique to such a point that it, I mean, he couldn't help it. And some pieces are, are written for that purpose, but really only a handful um, his greatest music, or that tends to be this in, introverted things, uh, these character pieces, and um, this is a magnificent playing. And anyway, so I've become friends with Susanna, and I actually made uh, her recording a recommendation, and I reached out to her on Facebook, and I said, hey, we haven't met, but uh, we have lots of mutual friends, and I wanted to tell you that I, I love your recording, and I'd like to recommend it on this thing. So since that time, we've sort of struck up a, 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 you know, a, a friendship on, on Facebook and, and been going back and forth, and um, so, uh, yeah, I'd like to do a shout out for, for those two uh, great artists. That's fantastic. Um, Les, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, been uh, uh, incredibly insightful. Uh, you know, you mentioned Bruce Pollen uh, um, a little bit earlier. I was actually in the last class last year of him conducting the Vancouver Children's Bach Choir and the Bach Choir as a whole. And... Uh, I remember distinctly when um, he was hit, he announced his retirement and he said and uh, Leslie Dalla would be replacing uh, the position and so if I had stuck around we would have met back then. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I, I don't think I knew that. I think I would have remembered that. That's amazing. As always, a big thank you to Mr. Duncan Watts Grant for editing and producing the show with me. Remember to catch Vancouver Opera Offstage with host Maestro Leslie Dalla every Wednesday on your preferred podcast streaming application. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to Noteworthy and Vancouver Opera Offstage. Until next week, stay safe and keep making music.